come to the scriptures together. We're in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with, his, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or young or old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we we come to you this day, to your word, seeking you. We pray, Lord, that you would, would speak to us through the scriptures. Give us your spirit that we might have ears to hear, hearts to understand and receive and be moved by what it is you have to teach us today. We pray that we would see your son, and seeing him, we would know him and worship him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we we return to a passage that 
We began last week. We heard from Pastor Nate. We read this passage with a focus to Christ as a threat to kings. If Christ is king, that means that Herod is not king. It means that you are not king. Christ is a threat to all our kingly pretensions. Today, we come to the same passage, but with a different focus. We are looking to Christ as a savior for wise men. He is a threat to kings, but Christ is also a savior. I would like us to notice three things from this passage today. First is the foolishness of the wise, the wisdom of the foolish, and Christ, the wisdom and power of God. The foolishness of the wise, the wisdom of the foolish, and Christ, the wisdom and power of God. This passage is well-known and well-beloved, certainly. Uh, we hear it most, most times. We celebrate Christmas. We remember the wise men. But it is a, it's a story that is mysterious and, and strange, and it, it raises many questions. Who are, the, who are these wise men, and what is this star? Well, I, I can't promise you that it will answer all the questions. I have not figured out this to suddenly reveal to you this day, no. Uh, but I can give us some, some help and some guidance. What do we know? What do we know of these wise men? Not much. Matthew is very slight on description. You have, are probably familiar with the Christmas carol, We Three Kings. Well, Matthew doesn't say that they were kings, and he doesn't say that they were three. Um, it is an unknown number of magi who are, they have a large enough party and a, a noble enough party to win an audience with Herod, but we don't know how many there were. Uh, but what are these magi? That's what the word is. We, we've said wise men historically, but the word is magi in the scriptures. Uh, magi were not kings, but they were counselors to kings. They were wise men trained in literature and in wisdom, in the interpretation of dreams, and in astronomy or, or astrology. Um, the difference was not quite so clear back then. The same word, magi, is actually used to describe uh, the, the class of people that Daniel belonged to in the book of Daniel. Daniel was trained in Babylon to be one of the magi, one of the counselors to the king. But here in Matthew, the emphasis is more on the star-watching aspect, the astronomy and astrology aspect. And it's a particular star that brings these wise men from the east, maybe Babylon, to Jerusalem to find he who has been born king of the Jew, Jews. We call them wise men, but actually you, when you read the story, it, it seems they're doing things that are not quite so wise, not what we would consider to be wise. For example, they come to Jerusalem Good choice. That's the major city. That's where the king would reside. And they come before the king, and then they ask, where is the king? Doesn't seem like a wise choice. When you, if they have any knowledge of, of Herod and the lengths that he goes to to maintain his throne, it is not a good idea to come before him and ask, where is the king? Then, after they learn where Christ is to be born... They leave Jerusalem, the regional seat of power and influence, and they follow the star to the little town of Bethlehem, to a house, not to a palace, and they find 
a child, a toddler with no royal trappings. And they bow down and worship him. And they give him gifts, costly gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, gifts that are fit for a king. Though nothing about Christ at this time shows him to be a king. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this scene? These noblemen scholars have come from the east, likely with guards and servants. They have crossed mountains and valleys and rivers at great expense, at great distance, a thousand miles perhaps, sacrificing their time, their wealth, and their honor, all to bow down and worship a child in a foreign land, far from the great eastern centers of power and civilization. Remember the east, Persia and and Babylon and Assyria, these great empires who had conquered and ruled over Israel historically? They have left these places to come to Israel. It makes no sense. It doesn't make sense. Normally, visitors to kings give gifts, and this is what they do, and it's appropriate. But the child Jesus has nothing to give in return. Normally, when you give gifts to a king, that you're, you're building a relationship, and you expect gifts in return. But Christ, the child, and his family have nothing to give that can compare to what these costly gifts are that the wise men are giving. It seems foolish. Seems foolish. Moreover, what interest do these men have in the king of the Jews? These are Gentile men. They are foreigners. Not only Gentiles and foreigners, but Gentile sinners. They are astrologers. They are magi. Maybe you hear it in the word magi. We get the same word magic from that word. Magic and magi. That's where we get the word magic. They seek messages in the stars from the gods. This is what they do. In Isaiah, in chapter 47, verse 13, God actually mocks such men. He says to them, You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars. The prophet Isaiah mocks Babylon for relying on people who stare at the stars, hoping for messages from the gods. Astrology was a brand of false prophecy that was forbidden in Israel. How could they expect to be received by the king of the Jews? What could have moved such men to come and seek the Christ and worship him? Matthew does not give us much of an answer to this question. But there are two things that we can note. First, as wise men, they likely had access to scriptures, and perhaps even Jewish scriptures. So maybe they were familiar with the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, we read in chapter 24, a prophecy that says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. They might also have known Daniel. And Daniel, he lived in almost his whole life in the city of Babylon. And Daniel prophesied of a coming royal figure whose kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. Matthew does not say this, but we are guessing here. We don't know. What we do know is, secondly, that they found 
a star. They saw a star rise in the east, and they followed it to Israel. Now, this was no ordinary star. Some people try to equate the star in this story with a natural phenomenon, perhaps a comet or a wandering planet or a a supernova. None of that really holds up because this does what none of those could do. Because once they leave Jerusalem, the star appears again and leads them step by step to Bethlehem. And then it stops and it stands over the exact place where Christ is, even the precise house, so that they can find the Christ. This was supernatural, divine direction. So what portion do these Gentile stargazers have in the king of the Jews? What justifies their costly journey? The inevitable inevitable answer that Matthew gives us is this, that God has called them. God has called them. He orchestrated it from the first to the last, from the star's first rising to its standing over the house. God led them to his son. Then God warned them so that they could return safely to their own country. It's incredible. It's amazing. God brought them from the east to worship the Messiah. Remember the east, the same east whose people hundreds of years before had destroyed Jerusalem and taken its people captive into the east. These people, the least likely of people. What portion do such people have in Christ? God has called them. But the same question could be asked of us. What portion do we have in Christ? What portion do any of us have in the king of the Jews? We also are Gentile sinners, you and I. The story of the Magi gives us hope. For if God can call such men, descended from his people's most bitter enemies, if he can call such men embroiled in false prophecy like astrology, seeking messages from foreign gods, what is stopping him from calling anyone to himself and saving them by bringing them to his son? And that is why he sent his son in the first place. When we read about God's promise of his son in the prophets, specifically Isaiah, this is his purpose. It says in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, I will make you, speaking to Jesus, as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And in the the Magi, this story, we see the nations coming to Christ's light. It's beautiful. And if the wise men receive God's call and come, what excuse can any of us bring to not come to Jesus? Their sin ought to have excluded them from God's people, from any portion in the king of the Jews. And your sin, my sin, ought to exclude you. But yet God calls you still. There is no sin of yours that cannot be overcome by drawing near to his son. So the wise men show us. Not only that, the wise men show us that no sacrifice is too much to come to Christ. Remember, they they traveled a thousand miles, maybe many months, to come to Christ. They expended their wealth, their time, and their status. 
to come to little Bethlehem to worship the little child Christ. If anyone has excuses to not come to Christ, it was the wise men. And yet they came, and they rejoiced exceedingly, and they worshipped him. Have you come? Have you come to Christ? No matter how far you may feel or be from Christ, God calls you exactly where you all are to come to his son. It may seem foolish, but it is never foolish to follow God's call. That brings us to the second point, the wisdom of the foolish. The visit of the Magi is all the more incredible when we compare it to the reactions of other people in this story. We see three different reactions in Jerusalem. We see Herods, we see the people of Jerusalem, and we see the priests and the scribes. Now, Herod, we learned about last week. Remember, he, when the Magi came to Jerusalem, Herod heard that they said that a star indicated the king of the Jews had been born, and he was greatly troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And so he immediately sets to scheming. It's a kind of wisdom in that way. He's, he's a savvy fellow. He starts scheming. He finds out from the priests and the scribes where the Christ was born. He finds out from the Magi when Christ was born. When did the star rise? And then he sends the Magi to go and find the Christ and instructs them to report back to him. He didn't stay king for so long for no reason. But Matthew... Matthew shows Herod's true intention. He's not there to worship Christ. He's there to destroy him. And so God warns Joseph in a dream. It warns the wise men in a dream to flee and not be found by Herod. And when Herod discovers this fact that he's been tricked, he flies into a rage and he sends soldiers to kill every male in that region in Bethlehem. Herod is ruthlessly shrewd and savvy. But his response does not make sense, really. If he doesn't believe the prophecy about the Messiah, why would he weaken his kingdom by destroying a whole region's children, male children, two and under? Seems foolish. But if he does believe the prophecy, why does he think that he is going to be able to thwart God's plan for the Messiah? It doesn't make sense. But rebellion against God has never made sense. A couple warnings from God to the wise men and to, and to Joseph, and all of Herod's plotting comes to nothing. But there's other people, other people reacting to Christ's, uh, the news of Christ's birth. The people in Jerusalem, they are also troubled. We wonder why. Why would they be troubled at the Christ's coming? Why would they be troubled by the news of a new king? Well, they are likely very familiar with Herod and with his maniacal, uh, his ruthless removal of rivals. He will go to any length to preserve his throne. And so they fear what he will do. And knowing Herod, Herod, they fear rightly. But fear is all that they do. They are only worried about what it will cost them, what might go wrong, how it might hurt them. They are not asking what could be going right with the coming of the Christ. See, the Christ has come. The one for whom they have been waiting for generations that has been foretold in the prophets, the one, 
He has finally come. The days of Herod are numbered, and God's Savior has arrived. Now, they fear rightly. They fear Herod rightly, but they had more and more reason, a greater reason to rejoice that God has come to fulfill his word. And yet, they don't. They don't rejoice. They only fear. It's foolish. And then we come to the priests and scribes, who are perhaps the most disappointing in this story. The people, the the priests and the scribes, they are the most culturally influential ones in Israel. They are the religious leaders, the, the, the keepers of the tradition, of the scriptures. They know the scriptures backwards and forwards. They come to Herod, Herod assembles them, and Herod asks them when, where the Christ is to be born, and they answer right away without missing a beat. And they cite, as it were, chapter and verse. And they say, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written. And that's the last that we hear from them. They go back home. We don't hear any more from them. They cite the prophecy, but they show no interest in going to see the prophecy that God has fulfilled in their own day. And this is more astounding when you consider how close Bethlehem was to Jerusalem. It was a mere six miles They could have gone very easily, within a day, to examine these things, but they do not. They know the scriptures through and through, but they are utterly unmoved by them. You can imagine them feeling satisfied. You know, the king has brought them together and asks them a difficult question, and they gave the perfect answer, the right answer, and they are so satisfied. The people closest to Christ, culturally, geographically, were the furthest from him in their hearts. They go right back to their work, oblivious to the wonderful news that God is fulfilling his promises in their time. It's very disappointing. If, if the wise men, the story of the wise men's reaction is uh, encouragement to us to come to Christ, then these examples are a warning to us not to harden our hearts against his coming. The wise men, whom we might consider to be the furthest from Christ, as far from Christ as you could be, they are the ones who wholeheartedly come and worship him. But those who are closest to him, culturally, geographically, are farthest from him, and they are indifferent to his coming. Do you perhaps see yourself in any of these reactions. Perhaps you, perhaps you know the scriptures well. Perhaps you know your theology. Maybe now it's the new year, you have just started a new Bible reading plan, and you are plodding along in your scripture reading. Maybe to finish the whole Bible in a year, I've, I've taken on that, that plan. I'm trying to read through the scriptures again this year entirely. These are all good choices. You know, you go to Bible studies, you take notes, good decisions, good practices. But does your knowledge move you? Or does it remain abstract, theoretical, never touching your heart or moving you to action? Do you know the truth but remain indifferent to it? The wise men had barely any revelation from God. Barely any. Just a star. But they followed that revelation straight to Christ. 
Amazing. Today we have more words from Christ, from God in Scripture, than even the the scribes and the Pharisees had. But very often we remain unmoved by them. Or perhaps, like the people of Jerusalem, you fear the upheaval that following Christ would bring to your life. You fear what it would cost you materially or reputationally. You might have to humble yourself. No, no, you will have to humble yourself, first of all, to Christ, but also to those people in your life that you may have wronged. And when you do so, it feels like death. It hurts. Or perhaps you are like Herod. As Nate spoke about last week, you have a little Herod inside of you who knows that if Christ is king, then he is not king. And that little Herod rages at the thought. And unlike the wise men who sacrifice of themselves to come and worship Christ, this Herod is willing to sacrifice other people in order to maintain his unsteady rule. Herod, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the scribes, they all had a kind of worldly wisdom. It made sense in a worldly way. Herod knew how to keep power. The priests, had, they were experts in their field. And the people, they knew when to lay low. But all of these, all of these missed it. The Messiah came and they missed it. They rested in their knowledge, in their power, in their security, when what they really needed was Christ. They needed Christ. That brings us to the third point. Christ, the wisdom and power of God. See, the coming of Christ and the way that he came flies in the face of the value systems of the world, which prioritize power and knowledge. In our New Testament reading today from 1 Corinthians, we we read that the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Greeks. We have not changed much since the days when Paul wrote those words. We still seek signs, that is, demonstrations of power, We still seek wisdom, finding security and greater knowledge, hoping thereby to solve our problems and to save ourselves. There is no shortage of wise men. There is no shortage of scholars or no shortage of experts. We have perhaps more accumulated knowledge today than we have ever had in history. And there is no shortage of powerful leaders. We have greater technique, we have greater means to manipulate the natural world and to conform it to our desires than ever before. But these have not brought us any closer to God. They have not brought us salvation. They cannot give us what we truly need. We don't need another shrewd, world-conquering leader or nation. We've had those aplenty. We don't need more information or more books or more data. We don't need a guru. We don't need a life coach. We don't need a sage. We need a savior. That's what Christ gives us. That's what God gives us in his son. Only a savior can make an end of sin and death. Herod was savvy and shrewd up until the day he died. 
The scribes and the priests had all the answers, the very word of God, and yet they were blind to its import, blind to its meaning. They needed a savior. They needed God to open their eyes to see. Whatever knowledge we have, whatever power we trust in, it will perish with us and fail us. We need a Savior to open our eyes as well. You need a Savior. You need Christ, who, Paul says, has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. See, these, these are not achievements of human intellect or, or prowess, but they are the gifts, the gifts of God in Christ. And in Christ through the weakness of a child and the folly of the cross, God achieved salvation for the nations. That God gave us Christ in the, in the way that he gave us Christ, not to be another genius teacher, not to overthrow the unjust rule of Herod or Rome, but to die. That declares to us that what we need is not more power, not more knowledge, but a savior, one who will end death through death. That's what Christ is for us, a savior. T.S. Eliot reflects upon this, this story of, of the wise men, and he reflects on, on the birth of Christ and how the birth of Christ is unlike other births. In his poem, he says that the birth of Christ was more like a death is a birth like death. Yes, Christ's birth was like death, certainly his own, for he was born to die. But Eliot says, it felt like our death. It feels like our death. Because when you come to the Savior, you must die to yourself. You must die to worldly wisdom. You must die to worldly power, and you embrace Christ, the wisdom and power of God. The wise men did exactly this. They came from the east. They turned their backs on the wealth and the power and the prestige of the east, and they made pilgrimage to Christ. And they laid their treasures down before him and rejoiced and worshipped him. They returned to the east, they did, but they could never return the same. They could never value their power and their, their position there as they had before, because they had met the Savior, and he had changed everything. The birth of Christ bids us to worship him, to die to the idols that we have set up in our hearts, the idols of the world, and to take our treasures and lay them before him. It will seem foolish, and it will often feel like death, but that is precisely, that is precisely what Christ has done for you. He has laid down, he laid down his royal and divine privilege to redeem you. We have been confessing in this season of Advent and Christmas and Epiphany from Philippians chapter 2. We say, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. He's a savior. It seems foolish to us, but the foolishness of God is wiser than men. For by such foolishness, Christ has brought salvation to you, to all who trust in him, to the nations. And so now he bids us to come, to behold him, to worship, and to rejoice. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we we give you praise. We rejoice at the good news that you have declared in the coming of Christ. Lord, we have been far from you, but you call us near. You draw us near to your Son. Send out your light, O Lord, and draw the nations to you. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to forsake worldly wisdom, forsake worldly power, and come to the humble Christ, who is our Savior, the one who can deliver from sin and death, who can do what no power of ours, no wisdom of ours can accomplish, to save us and to bring us to you. Lord, we praise you. We praise you for your Son and for your salvation in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.